Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to Episode 79 of the Adoption Connection Podcast. Hey, Lisa. How are you guys doing? It has been an exciting week where you live in Idaho. I don't know if I would call it exciting. It has been quite a week, I have to say. Eventful. I think it's been eventful. There we go. You know, in the first place, uh, this is our second, well, our third week, I guess, of quarantine and uh, second week of really trying to do school at home with the kids and me working at home and everything that's been, uh, it's had its challenges. Um, the weather has been a little nuts. We've had hailstorms and snow and just really unpleasant weather. And then the other day we had an earthquake and we do not have earthquakes in Idaho. It's very, very rare. And it was a big enough earthquake. I mean, it was um, turned out to be quite a ways away from us. It was more near Southern Idaho and we live in North Idaho. It was a 6.5 earthquake in Southern Idaho, but our house shook and it was, yeah. And I just thought, oh, this is pushing me over the edge. I've had too much to manage, but we were all fine. It's just been quite a week. Yeah. Yeah. And too much snow to really get your money's worth out of that brand new trampoline. (laughs) I know. I know. Russ and the boys set it up on Saturday and it's just been kind of miserable weather ever since. But today there may be a chance. I'm hoping. I I still believe it's a good purchase and we're going to be so glad that we have it for activity. But uh, yeah, we could definitely stand less snow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I think we're in for the long haul. It's definitely a long-term purchase for sure. And you'll use it even, I'm sure, far beyond our quarantine. Yes. So here at the Adoption Connection, if you're new, you might not know that Lisa and I make up all three parts of the adoption triad. I am an adoptee. I was adopted from Korea as an infant. And Lisa is a birth mom or first mom. And then of course, we're both adoptive moms. And because of that, we value hearing from all sides of the triad here on the podcast. And so while we like to bring a lot of very informative episodes and topics and guests, we reached out to our Facebook community and you all said, one, it's a little bit harder to listen to podcasts during this particular time. And that when you do listen, you kind of like to stay on the kind of story side, the human interest side, if you will. So That's what we're going to endeavor to do while we're all hunkered down. Yes, so today's guest, I had the opportunity to meet her. Her name is Tara Vanderwood, and I got to hear her speak at the Replanted Conference in Chicago last fall. And I remember I was sitting up in this upper balcony watching her and listening to her, and I thought, wow, she really has an important message, and I would just... Love, first of all, to get to know her more, and secondly, to have her on the podcast. So we're just thrilled that she was able to come on. She is a social worker, advocate, and educator. And when we asked her what is her favorite thing to talk about, she said she likes to talk about the complexities of adoption. So she speaks nationwide at conferences and support groups, culture camps, churches, schools, and she mostly educates and consults on the complexities of adoption, identity, and race. 
As a transracial adoptee, she has both experienced and studied the realities of adoption and has had countless conversations with other adoption professionals and with fellow adopted persons and their families. So she lives in the Midwest with her husband and her kids. She enjoys conversations with friends, reading with her kids, traveling, and continual learning. And you'll hear about um, her family's travels to Korea. And her children are also um, adopted, and they're adopted from Korea. She says she believes that vulnerability, connection, and humor are lifelong essentials. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation that I had with Tara Vanderwood. Yeah, so let's hop right in. Hello, Tara. Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. It took us a little while to get this coordinated, but I'm so glad we finally found the right time. Yes, thanks so much. Well, I think the most valuable thing we could do is um, start by you sharing your story. You know, we'll come back to details about it, but why don't you just start out by telling our listeners who you are? So before I start, um, I often like to make the statement that this is, like you said, my story. It's certainly not the story of every adoptee or every Korean adoptee, um, but I'm certainly happy to share um, how I experienced some of the different events, defining events in my life that include, that include adoption. So I was born in South Korea, and I'm not sure of the day, I'm not sure of when, I'm not sure of where, um, but I was either found or left somewhere, um, perhaps brought to uh, a counseling center at around two months of age. Um, they based my age probably on um, my development, my growth, and the vocal cord, and I found my way into an orphanage in Daegu, South Korea, which is in South South Korea, the southern part. It's a large city, and I lived in that orphanage um, from about two months of age until I was about a year old when I was adopted. Um, and I was adopted by my parents, who lived in West Michigan. They had already adopted my older brother, who is also Korean, and um, we are not genetically or biologically related. And I only add that because that's often people's follow-up question is, are you real brother and sister, right? Um, or are you biologically related? And we are not. They adopted him and then they adopted myself. Um, and when I was about four years old, my mother, um, my adoptive mother, she learned that she was pregnant. This was a really exciting time for my family because they assumed that they were experiencing infertility, which is what led them to adopt um, kids from Korea. It was an exciting time. My brother arrived um, in April and my mom was um, immediately diagnosed with breast cancer and she died uh, in January, about nine months later. So here I am as a five-year-old. My older brother from Korea was eight and then I had a younger brother who was an infant born to my mom. She passed away in January. So leaving the three of us and, and my father. So this is now the second mother. Um, the second mother that I had lost in my in my short amount of my short life on earth. From there, my father soon remarried. My stepmom entered our life um, that same year that my mom that my mom died, and my stepmother too um, was widowed. She had lost her first husband um, in a really tragic automobile accident, and so together. 
they had another child. So this brought the number of children in our home to four and four kids that came from all different birth mothers, so to speak, and then three different birth fathers. I grew up in West Michigan, which is a predominantly white community, and it is also predominantly um, Dutch. There's a high number um, of, of um, Dutch that live in that area. In fact, my parents, um, my mother and my father, were both, were both Dutch, um, as well as my stepmother. So I grew up in this area, attended a, a Christian school, and um, attended church with my family, and in many ways lived an all-American um, childhood. Um, I had friends, I enjoyed school, I studied, and at the same time, um, had the complexities of being one of the few kids of color, um, the complexities of losing parents, of living in an institution for nearly a year of my life, even if I didn't have any verbal memories that I could share with anyone. Um, and then just living too with, uh, with the ramifications of losing a parent to death. And then spent marriage and everything that entails for a family. So I feel like I covered a lot of hard things in the first handful of years. Stayed in West Michigan, um, met my husband in high school and started dating my husband already in high school. Um, in case you're curious, he's also white and he's also Dutch, right? There wasn't, <laughs> that was from whom I could, from whom I could choose. We stayed, um, we stayed in Michigan through college, and then after college, we moved to um, to Indiana, um, where my husband did some graduate school, um, and that's where we are today. We are the parents of two children, both of whom were adopted, and both of whom were born in South Korea. So that's an interest um, piece, being a Korean adoptee, and then also the mother of two Korean adoptees. Um, we live in a downtown area um, where our kids are now 13 and 11. I work at a school. Um, my husband works here downtown, and I think we envision we envision staying here for a while. Um, my son's getting ready to start high school, and my daughter is in, in middle school. I've worked um, in a variety of social work positions, and most recently kind of stumbled my way, I guess, I don't know, 15 years ago into the world of adoption. And I worked for a large placing agency for a number of years. And that's when I really learned more um, than just my own experience as an adopted person, which is so important. Like you said, share your story. Um, and that's a story I've known very well. Um, but to move beyond that and to learn from a collective um, of adoptees and to learn from professionals and to learn about um, all kinds of topics related to adoption, whether it's identity and race. Um, attachment, trauma. And it was really during that time that um, my husband and I were considering our family um, and thinking about what our family, what our family might look like. Um, and so during those years working for an agency, we recognized that if kids were still being adopted from Korea, and if this is something that um, we're open to, right, we both knew we wanted to parent. And if it's something that we truly understand, race, identity, attachment, um, and the intersection of all of those things. And if we are willing and wanting to take kids back to Korea and to learn about from where, you know, our kids were born, that really adoption is something that we would be really excited to, to look into and to learn more about. And so that's kind of where our, the beginning of our adoption considerations and um, the idea 
kind of kind of started when I was in that space. Um, and then also along with working for a placing agency, I started doing a lot of education for current and prospective adoptive parents and for adoption professionals as well, educating them on what I like to call are the complexities of adoption just really leaving the door wide open. It's not all good. It's not all bad. It's not all easy. It's not all hard, but can we allow um, the complexities to, to coexist with this adoptive family that we have now? Because when we are able to do that, I feel like that's when real growth um, and learning can occur because we've allowed for for it just to be what it is, right? So now having a 13 and 11 year old, we live some of those complexities regularly. And me now as a 40 year old, I've lived those complexities and they come about in new and in different ways um, throughout the years. So that's where we are now. And um, I still do some education for adoptive parents and try to speak to what I've learned, not just from my own story, but from the stories of so many um, who've experienced adoption from the various, various perspectives and through various lenses. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, we really value the, the adoptee voice here, and also just recognizing the whole triad. And I know you know this, but Melissa and I together do comprise the whole triad. I think that's a valuable thing because we have just a more rounded perspective, even though like my story is very much my story. And, you know, what it was like to be a birth or first mom when my son was born is different than what it's like now. But some of the things are still the same, grief and loss and all of those things, power, you know, so many things. Anyhow, I love that you can share both parts of that story. So you said that you um, do a lot of education for professionals and adoptive parents on the complexities of adoption. Do you want to maybe touch on a couple of those, a few of those, the ones that you see coming up again and again? When I first started talking more often about my my adoption, and let me say that that probably happened maybe in high school and in college, right? And maybe it's because the earlier years of my childhood, I was simply surviving, right? Simply surviving some of the losses I had experienced. And then just being a kid, not having the words to articulate what was maybe floating around in my mind. Um, And then coming to this place in high school and college where I really um, desired and felt more freedom to be curious about myself and to be curious about my past. And it's then that I started sharing maybe with others and I recognized that the, what, what I was sharing was not always well received from others. So perhaps it was that, hey, I want to go to the Korean American church. I want to perhaps learn something that used to be mine that still could be mine and that is part of me. Um, and then being met with someone telling me like, well, why would you care about that now? You know, you're Dutch, you live here. Um, and even for myself at one point saying to people, I'm not Korean, I'm Dutch, you know, and I cringe when I think about saying that, <laughs> like, I can't believe I said that. And that's no fault of my own. And I'm not saying that that was right or wrong. But I think that's an example of how I was coping as an only in a predominantly white Dutch area. Um, and now feeling completely different about um, ethnicity and race. And so some of these complexities of, hey, I want to learn about my birth culture, I want to learn about my ethnicity, or maybe sharing something about adoption, which led other people to believe, well, you could still live in an orphanage, aren't you happy now? Um, You've got a great new family, this is how you came to know the Lord, and just, wow, there was this disconnect. You know, I'm saying one thing, Um, other people are interpreting it a different way and then making a values-based assumption 
that perhaps because I'm saying A, that perhaps B, C, and D are true. That because I'm curious about my past, that must mean I had a terrible childhood. I wasn't well adjusted. I had this big hole in my heart. And they were um, really assuming things that um, they didn't, they, they shouldn't have been because, um, as I say, it's complex, right? I can both be curious and hold esteem and love for that, which I have now. And so I just started running into some of those complexities and didn't really know how to share about them. Um, and some of that happened when I um, met other people who were adopted. Certainly my older brother was adopted. We didn't talk about it a whole lot, right? We're brother and sister. My parents didn't necessarily encourage us to talk about it. Um, not in the same way that I encourage our family or that I just naturally and neutrally and openly just drop a nugget out there and see who says what. Or, you know, when I really do bring up a talking point very intentionally, that's not something that happened in my childhood home. Um, I certainly think my parents were doing the best that they could with what they had and with what they knew at that time. Silence really communicates too. And I think that their silence on some of these matters Perhaps um, the impact of that was that I didn't know how to talk about some of these things and or I didn't know how I didn't know how or I didn't know that it was okay to talk about these things. Um, so yeah, so many complexities, um, and some of which I think are formed because often when we think about adoption, we hear people talking about it in one of two ways. One, that it's the most mir miraculous, celebratory, amazing, sacrificial, um, exuding joy type way, right? Or the, on the other hand, where adoption is demonized, I don't know how someone could do that. How could a birth mom leave her child? How could an adoptive parent love their child? Um, or you hear those stories of the adoptee um, who's in a movie and they have all these issues, all because they were adopted and all these pathological things, right? And so um, oftentimes I think the general public sees adoption um, maybe in one or two of those ways. Um, and isn't used to actually just hearing the raw, realistic experiences that we've had that can't all be put under the good or the bad or the right or the wrong category. It just is what it is. And oftentimes I feel like I'm very comfortable sharing the hard, um, but other people don't know how to receive it. And so if I don't have someone with whom I can share without being dismissed or without someone trying to make it all better for me or put on some Band-Aid, a Band-Aid for which I'm not looking, right? Um, if I don't have someone with whom I can share that with, that gets kind of confusing. <laughs> and it leaves someone, um, yeah, it, it has left me confused and misunderstood, I would say. So yeah, some of the complexities I think really um, relate to um, how one understands adoption, um, how we talk about adoption, the language that we use. I think in the church, how we talk about adoption is a topic that we've been talking more and more about. And to recognize that adoption indeed start with loss. I think that's something that's often been missing from the conversation, especially for those that view adoption as this most amazing, miraculous, wonderful thing. You should do it too, because it's so great. The loss that we've experienced have been complete, completely dismissed. And that's not what we typically do for big losses, right? But with adoption, as one adoptee has said, you know, adoption loss, is, I'm sorry, adoption is the only loss that you're supposed to be thankful for, right? It's something, something of that nature. I'm getting the quote, the quote wrong. I think it's the Reverend um, Griffith who shared that. And that really resonated with me.
I think that I've heard you talk about, and I, I, you'll have to explain this, but you talked about the, that, that black and white either or thinking that if we spoke to someone who had been widowed and then they remarried, would we, would we expect them to say, oh, well, it's a good thing my first husband died because mm-hmm. I'm really so happy now with my husband. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think of the phrase that we use, the miracle of adoption. And I certainly understand people's intent, right? What a miracle it might be for these two parties to be brought together and to becoming to become this loving family. Um, what a miracle. And I hear that as the adopted person. And I think about, well, if it's a miracle, and if I'm only hearing about it in a celebratory, amazing way, what happens when I start feeling the sadness of having to have been adopted, adopted in the first place? I mean, something brought me to the place of needing to be adopted, right? And that's the absence of my birth parents. That's either the abandonment or being left the rejection, as some adoptees would call it. However, an adoptee interprets that or understands that has led an adoptee to to needing to be adopted. And so I think about that saying, and then I think about some of the other losses that we experience, right? Um, And so, yes, that example that you just gave, perhaps I lose my spouse um, and I remarry and I have this second husband. And um, I think people would assume that I might still feel sad about losing my first husband at some point, right? Um, but when we, as the adopted person express sadness about losing our first parents, it's like, but look what you have now. And we don't call it the miracle of remarriage, (laughs) um, because I think we understand that there were hard things that happened in order to get to the remarriage. Um, we don't call it the miracle of set parenthood (laughs) because we understand that there's some complexities there that will be lifelong. Um, but somehow with adoption, Some of us have completely severed the loss piece off or the hard things that have happened. We've completely abandoned that just for the notion of all the good and the wonder. Um, And I think that can leave an adopted person very confused and misunderstood because I do believe that God created families to stay together. Um, And so I just think that we need to be careful with our language because regardless of our intent, the impact of our language leaves lasting effects on those who are adopted and those within our greater communities as well. Um, We need to be careful with what we say so that we are informing people rightly and realistically um, about what adoption is. So can you give us some suggestions of how we should be talking to our kids? What, obviously what you said is silence is is a message in and of itself. So we can't assume, well, my child's not asking me any questions, so I guess everything's okay. Let's say you have a child who's not asking much. What would you suggest an adoptive parent do? So I really advocate for prior to even having your child in your home, starting to get comfortable yourself with what you believe about adoption. Because I believe before you can even have conversations with your child, you need to really examine what your expectations are for adoption, what your motivations were in adopting, and what you, pers- what you believe your family will look like down the road and how adoption might impact that. So I think that you need to start considering um, how you might still have losses, right? 
um, how you're coming into adoption perhaps with expectations that might not be realistic. And so prior to parenting a child through adoption, address some of those things. If you're adopting with a spouse, um, please talk together about some of your expectations, your hopes, your dreams, um, and get comfortable with some of the real, um, the real um, things that are gonna come up as it relates to adoption, such as your kids' curious curiosity about birth parents or about race and ethnicity, um, about how your family will be questioned in ways that other families are not. Are those things that you're actually truly comfortable with? Maybe realizing that adopting a child is not the same as birthing a child. And so you might still have a lot of hurt and loss wrapped up there that you really need to talk about um, so that you can be in a healthy, healthy place to support your adopted child. So yeah, that's what I think the first piece is, really a lot of self-reflection. Because I think so often our kids, they're ready to talk about adoption. They are experiencing it, it is their reality. But it's the adults, it's the parents who don't know how to talk about it because their toes are being stepped on perhaps, maybe their feelings might be being hurt, maybe they feel a little insecure yet about who they are. And none of us are perfect, Lisa, right? Myself included. We're all going to have some bumps, many bumps, you know, some days, some years, some seasons with parenting. But a lot of parents have not even delved into their own, their own expectation, expectations and comfort level with some of the some of these very real threads within adoption. And then I think when you have a child in your home, you are talking from day one, right, about adoption. It's not this big um, formal sit down, come to the dining room table, we have to talk about adoption, right? That's great for anyone. No, no kid wants to be called to the kitchen table for a talk of any sort, right? And so I really break down these conversations about adoption and or race and ethnicity into a couple parts. We want to talk to our kids from a young age. I know some of our kids come to us at older ages, but from a young age, we want to talk with them regularly because we know that development with our kids, like they're going to understand adoption one way when they're four, another way when they're 14, another way when they're 34. Maybe it's the case that they understand it one way January 1st, a different way January 3rd, you know, etc. Kids, kids, there's no perfect recipe as we know for parenting. So from a young age, regularly. And then as parents, we need to be the initiators. We absolutely need to be the initiators of these conversations because like you and I just mentioned, silence communicates. So why might a kid not talk to us about adoption? Well, because they might think mom and dad never bring it up. Why would I have to bring it up? It might not be important. They also might not come to us because kids have this x-ray vision of um, perhaps perceiving how our how our parents might feel about adoption. Well, whenever I talk about adoption, mom shifts in her seat or she gets a tear in her eye. I don't want to make my mom sad. I don't want to make her mad. You know, a number of reasons. Kids might not come to us because they don't have the right words. They don't know how to um, use the language appropriately. So then they fear what they might say. As adults, we often don't have the right words, right? Think about these tricky, complex conversations we have with other adults. We're afraid, you know, to say, to say the wrong things. And then think about an eight-year-old child. So I really do um, young age initiate and then regularly. And then another rule I have for parents that we will never shh or shush our kids when they come to us or ask us about adoption. Um, or about race or ethnicity. Um, we cannot expect our kids to have these perfect polished thoughts about adoption that we feel that we need to correct them, right? And so sure, our kids might come to us with some misguided um, beliefs 
um, but we need to hear them out first so we can completely understand. You know, I don't like to talk a whole lot about my kids because I like to give them privacy because certainly they did not ask to be the child of someone who speaks on adoption and race all the time. Um, but one of my kids one day said to me when my child was younger, just out of the blue, isn't it crazy, mom, that you're not my real mom? Or maybe it was just, you're not my real mom. Maybe that's what it was. And it was just said as we were cooking dinner, right? And I know some adoptive parents would be very, very upset by that because we are told that we are the real parents. We took them to soccer practice. We did all the paperwork. You better believe that we're your real parent, right? But then I think about my child who said this. There was no ill intent. My child was just saying something that must have been fluttering through his or her mind at the time. And for me to just say, oh, tell me more. What do you mean? You know, and for my child to explain further and for me to say, you're absolutely right. That is super crazy that we were born thousands of miles from here. We were actually born in the same country. We weren't related and now we're related now. I'm your mother. You're my child. That is crazy. And it's crazy that you have other parents out there. There was no correction of I'm the real parent, right? I did not shush my child because he or she didn't say biological or real. It was just that I could accept what my child said to me in that moment and then explore deeper and kind of joke around a little bit because I could tell that it was not the serious thing that my child was coming to me with sadness or grief, but it was more of an exploratory, this is crazy, right? Like here we are cooking dinner together, making the chicken and you're not even my real mom. I mean, that's nuts. Can't we just be okay with that? I have no, I don't have to defend myself as my child's real parent. I'm in no competition with a birth parent, that's one of the complexities of adoption that are we ready for? Can we accept what comes out of our kids' mouths, mouths as them trying to make sense of something that is not overly typical, it's not universal, um, there's no recipe book um, or guidebook for doing this. Can I accept that with my child and go to those places with my child without, without any um, fear of not being um, the real parent. So that's just one example um, that I would give. I'm not sure what your first question even was, Lisa. I think it was about how to talk with kids. But we need an openness and a flexibility about us. We need to remember that this is not about us. Um, this is not about us. I don't ever mention to my kids, you know, um, why did A, B, and C adopt you? Like, I don't, that's not part of this. Yeah, that's, that's not part of this. I don't want to put any guilt on my children, right? And I think we unintentionally do that sometimes. I do that in other areas of parenting probably, <laughs> but I'm super mindful of it when it comes to loss and adoption. Um, I've got to let them figure this kind of stuff out, and I want to do it while they're still in my home. And I know for many adoptees, they're not comfortable doing it within the walls of their own home for fear of upsetting or offending their adoptive parents. So we really need to get real about adoption talk and get comfortable with it so that we can go to these places with our kids. I had an experience once with one of mine who um, just out of the blue, and my child was fairly young. I can't remember how old now, but probably at least five or six. And out of the blue, this child asked me, when are you going to take me home? And I said, well, we are home. We were literally getting out of the car. I was like, well, we are home. And he said, no, I mean home to my mom. 
the challenge here is that this doesn't usually happen when we're prepared. <laughs> and so, and as a first mom, I live in this tension that you experience too in a different way. I live in this tension of feeling like, yes, I am so glad he cares about his first mom, that he, she's in his mind and in his heart, and he wants to see her and be with her. And at the very same time, I'm feeling like, wow, I mean, where did that come from? I mean, and I, there's just this unique tension for me. And in the moment, we have to come up with the words, you know, and I probably don't do it perfectly either, even with knowing everything I know. It's just, um, I, I think our hearts have to be in the right place in order to hopefully get some of the words right, you know, and that's where we have to have this introspection before, before we bring children home. We need to, I think we have to have a very clear openness toward birth family and try to um, try to have a lot of empathy for them. And of course, all situations are different. You know, we have listeners who have very complex situations where they've adopted from foster care, where their children have been deeply harmed by their first families. And you know, from having worked in the adoption world that that makes it even more complicated. And yet, we still need to prepare ourselves as much as we can to have these good conversations with our kids because these parents are always going to be part of them. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with what you said. Um, and you're right. You know, some of these comments or questions or curiosity with our kids, it comes at crazy times. Um, and one thing that I've learned instead of responding to my child right away, is just say, Oh, tell me more. Um, it buys you some time, right? And it also helps you, um, at least I need more time sometimes. And it helps you understand the context in which your child is sharing that statement. So when you say, tell me more, or if your child is describing a situation to be able to say, oh, who else was there? What else was said to really try to gather more information before, you know, for me, I sometimes put on that educational hat and I want to teach my kids something right about adoption. And, <laughs> but that might not actually be what they need. So to learn more buy yourself some time, you know, if you're in a place like for that particular day, my child and I were cooking. And so, you know, the look on my face was probably just like, well, this is a bizarre, this is a bizarre comment for this time and place. And so I've even, you know, if it's not too noticeable, I've shifted my body so that, you know, my child can't see the look on my face. And I've continued to maybe wash the dishes and then say, oh, tell me more and quickly compose myself in 10 seconds before I turn around. Um, I'm sure my child was on to me in that moment. Who knows? But it's okay, too. I think take the pressure off as, as parents. It's okay if we don't do everything perfectly. And I know you're a big believer of that also, and that there's time to repair a conversation. And so I know there's been times I've said something to my kid, whether it's adoption or race related or not, that I said the next day or later that evening, you know what, sweetie, I was doing some more thinking about that. And I'm not sure that I explained that very well, or I'm not sure that um, I reacted in a way that I that I, um, that I wanted to. And, you know, maybe in the moment I was taken by surprise and I said something using big words or a big voice. And that's not, that's not at all, you know, when I look back, 
what I wanted to communicate to you. And so I think there's grace. There's a lot of grace in those moments too. I think one thing that you did ask is what are some of the messages and things that we can say to kids? I've heard some parents say, you tell us everything not to do. Would you tell us what to do? Right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Give us some tips. I think fully acknowledging that we've done some self-reflection that we've maybe talked about it with, with a spouse, if we're doing it together, um, that we've talked about it with peers who are walking the same walk as us as adoptive parents, that we've learned from others that we've read, that we've listened to a lot of adult adoptees. But I think being able to say to our kids, um, you know what, honey, there's both loss and gain in adoption. Or saying something like, you know what, it is sad when parents and kids can't stay together. As much as I love being your mommy, it's also really sad when a baby can't stay with his or her first mommy and daddy. And honey, that must not make any sense. Or you know what, honey, it must be really rough that your friends, they know exactly what hospital they were born in and they have pictures of themselves when they were two days old and they've heard the birth story. And I wonder how that feels that we don't have that information for you. So you are naming that which they've experienced and what they might be processing um, even after adoption. I think it's okay to say things like, you know what, honey, it's okay that adoption doesn't always feel like a blessing. It's okay that adoption feels really, really hard sometimes. I can see why Orphan Sunday must feel like a lot of extra attention. What are we going to do this year? I wonder how we can respond to some of those comments. Um, saying things to our kids like, you know what, honey, you've got two sets of parents. You never have to choose between us. Or, you know, it, it might be, it must be rough when even your closest friends still ask you the same thing about adoption because they just don't understand. So I think saying some of those things um, very intentionally to our kids, um, even saying, you know what, you can feel any which way about adoption um, or your love for your birth parents, that's a beautiful thing. It doesn't threaten me at all. I know that you have enough love for everyone in your life. Sentiments like that, messages, um, like those, I feel like are so important to give to our kids um, and to name to name the different people and places in our kids' lives. I've talked to some adoptive parents and they say, I don't even know how to use the word birth mom. <laughs> and I think, you know what, you start, you teach a kid that they started just like everyone else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, babies start in women's bodies and you had to grow really strong in there. And I bet you kicked like crazy because that's what babies do. And you were probably in there for eight or nine months and your birth mother's mom grew around. However, your whatever terms you're using for the, for the different people in your child's life. And then explaining, you're right, honey, you did not, you did not grow in my body. You grew in another woman's body. And we, we call her X, Y, and Z, whatever term you're using. Maybe you see a pregnant lady at Target, and when you get back into the car, you're saying something something like, do you remember that that's how you started, too? You were getting all warm and cozy and growing strong. We have to be able to give them the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so often, because of our fear um, or our own discomfort, I feel like that's missing. We're not offering that to our kids. That's so good. That's actually really helpful. I, now, you said... When you referred to birth moms, you said, or whatever term you're using, what, <laughs> what kinds of things have you heard and that are positive choices for parents? You know, I do think it's important that um, you are consistent with the name that you use because I've, I've 
talk to some adoptees who are like, I have seven moms, like my biological mom, my birth mom, my first mom, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to, we offer our kids some consistency. I, in our home, we've often used birth mother. We've often used Korean mother, which is complicated because I'm also a Korean mother. So (laughs) in our situation, um, that hasn't always worked. But sometimes when I use one of those terms, such as birth mother or first mother, I might even mention to our kids, you know what, some people call them biological mothers, some people call them this, just to give them the knowledge base that when you hear any of those terms, that's often what is used um, to refer to your first mother, to the mother um, that grew you, to the mother um, that relinquished you. Um, I will explain and give them um, kind of the alternatives that they might hear. Um, But yeah, typically in our family, we say birth and first, and they know, you know, my kids know at this age that we're always referring to the, to the same person. So it's interesting when I hear people introduce themselves now and say that they have two biological kids and two adopted kids. And I know most adopted parents only do that when they're talking about something adoption related, right? That's when they'll make the distinction. Um, And I think about that term biological. I'm biological, just like you're biological. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The -hmm. question is you're biological to whom, right? And so, um, so when I use the word biological, I'll often say, you know, that my, my adoptive parents had two kids through adoption and they had two kids through birth, I'll often say, or I'll sometimes say two kids biological to them because just saying biological, I mean, I've got biology in me. So um, I've recently kind of um, thought about that a little bit more as I think about the importance of words and not that I'm out policing people. I mean, there's so much grace, I think, too, um, for, for language. I mean, I am a big... Um, advocate of using appropriate language, but um, I know that there is so much room for for learning and continually kind of um, reflecting on the words that we use. None of us are going to get it perfectly. Um, But as I seek to educate my kids on what words they might use, I want to be able to do that in a very mindful and realistic way too. So the, the biological thing, recently I've been, I've been thinking about that in the past couple of years because it's such a common one that people will say that I have two biological kids. Um, when in fact, when you say two biological kids, you could be referring to me as an adopted person because I, I'm biological. <laughs> it's just a matter of yes. to whom. <laughs> you know, that's something I've felt, well, not strongly, like you said, not policing people, but personally, I have felt that since the very beginning. And I've all, I don't ever say, well, maybe I have, but I, I can't recall a time where I said my bio kids. I usually say I have eight children by birth and four through adoption. And then sometimes more through foster care, you know, because I did birth those children, but all of my kids are biological. Like just from the point of science, it doesn't make any sense to me. So, but I understand it's, it is a simplistic and quick way of introducing and explaining your family. So I do understand that, but it's just language that I'm, I'm careful about because it matters to me, I guess. Sure. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's good to know I'm not crazy when I <laughs> when I have wrestled through, like, what does that truly mean? And like you said, I want my kids to know that from a science perspective, um, they've got it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're biological. They've got cells. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I do think I, I, like I said, I do understand that that's just really common adoption language, but you know, we all have things. And like for me, I do tend to say first, but I almost always say I'm a first 
birth mom because people don't know what I'm saying when I say a first mom. They're like, what does that mean? Because it's not language that's as, as common, especially to adoptive parents. I think in the first mom world and community, we know what we're talking about, but the rest of the world may not, you know? So I end up explaining that a little bit, but it just seems a lot more accurate to me, you know, that I didn't just give birth to my son. I was his first mom, you know? And first and second don't have any value difference. It's not that, I think sometimes I've heard people say, well, first sounds like it's more important. It's not. It's just, I came first and, and then she entered his life as his next mom, you know? And, but language is tricky and complicated. And I think, I think you're right though, that using consistent language with our kids is really important. And so that they have words for how to talk about their first moms and first dads and whoever else is in their birth family or first family or yeah, see lots of words, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are definitely in this together and I don't mind being my kid's second, third or fourth mom. Mm -hmm. Um, I, like I said earlier, this is not competition. There's no value in first or second. These are not awards. Mm -hmm. These are not rankings. I tell my kids that they have multiple real parents Mm -hmm. and that that must be something really confusing sometimes because most of your friends, most of your friends don't have multiple real parents that they're trying to figure out and negotiate relationship and roles and responsibility. And so it is totally okay if that does not make sense. And it's totally okay if one day you feel X, Y, and Z about a birth parent or a first parent or about me. um, And you feel totally different the next day. I mean, that is just part of growth and maturity and part of natural curiosity and wrestling through something hard. And that preceded adoption. And so um, I am not going to give my kids an incomplete picture of adoption because I think that that will set them up to be more confused later because we have learned that from the adoptees who've gone before us, that they were told the celebratory, the amazing God wanted you in this family. And then when they have the questions, they feel like they can't verbalize them and they have to internalize it. Um, And when has that ever been a good thing for someone just to internalize all the emotions all on their own with no one to process or to ask or with no safe space. And so we need to be that safe space for our child. Um, So many adoptees um, start questioning when they leave the home. Um, But I want my kids to start grappling with all of this while they're under my roof, right? While we can do it together because they can do it. They can get this stuff something that they have to be 13 or 18 to fully understand. Um, we are laying the cognitive groundwork early. We're giving them some words, some phrases, some terms, some of the emotional connotations will follow, but we got to give our kids, um, we got to give our kids reality using age appropriate language, of course. But sometimes we think our kids aren't ready for things that they actually are ready for. It's, it's that we're the nervous ones. We're the ones that just want to protect. Um, and I would urge parents to not just protect, but we really have to prepare our kids, prepare and empower our kids so that they can cope with all of the events and circumstances in their lives. And it will be a lifelong process. We need to be the initiators so that our kids know it's okay. So before we wrap up, I want to touch on one more thing. And I, I'm curious about... When we're uh, trying to help our children maintain some of their culture, 
you know, sometimes that leads to trips back to where they were born. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. So race, ethnicity, culture, nationality, those topics have been something that I have been interested in from a very young age. I imagine it's because I was the only among this sea of blonde haired, blue eyed, tall Dutch people. Okay. Um, That was my experience. And so I obviously was very noticeable, very conspicuous. And so I remember just kind of thinking about this so often. And in fact, race, nationality, ethnicity, and culture, those have four different meanings and definitions. They are four very different things. And I won't go into all of those details now. As I thought about parenting a child who was born in one country, brought to another country, as I thought about a child who would be in a racial and ethnic, um, who would be a racial and ethnic minority here in the Midwest of the United States, Um, when I thought about um, my kids coming from a country that has a rich culture, there were a lot of um, things to which I was committed and a lot of intention went behind some of our decision-making. And one of those is trips to birth country. Certainly I'll share that um, traveling to birth country, um, in our case, traveling to South Korea is a very safe, um, a very safe option. I know some people, they, they, um, immediately say it's not safe or I don't X, Y, and Z. And I recognize there is some privilege with, you know, with South Korea and that um, it's an easy country to get around in and it's an easy place to go visit as Westerners. But one thing that I was very, um, very much um, committed to is taking my kids back to the place that they once called home, to the country where um, they were born in, but the same country that they had to leave. And so I wanted them to see where they were born. I wanted them to meet some of the people that were involved in um, their lives there. I wanted them to know that all of those people, it was important to who they are. And it wasn't like, oh, your life in Korea and now your life now. This is one complete life that had many different pages and chapters, but you did not completely start over when you met us. It's all one continuous life. And it's a life that we can look back upon and we can talk all about um, those different people and places and spaces. And so my husband and I were super intentional to get our kids back to Korea. And for us, you know, that means some financial considerations. So we've never been to Disney World. Um, We've never been on a spring break to Florida. (laughs) Um, We have prioritized getting back to Korea. And, you know, my husband and I went back to Korea when we were in our mid twenties on a homeland trip. And so we had already experienced it um, through that. And then I had gone back again to help out on that homeland trip for whom I still volunteer now. And then we've been back a couple of times to adopt our kids. We were really comfortable traveling back on our own with our kids. And so I want my, I wanted my kids to um, have those experiences um, in case someday they want to live in Korea. Should they want to study there? Should they want to spend a semester abroad? Maybe they want to teach English there someday. Maybe they meet someone Korea from Korea and live there someday. Who knows? You know, like the sky is certainly the limit. And I know so many adoptees who go back and maybe they're going back to search for birth parent. And so not only do they have this big birth parent search going on or hopes and dreams as it relates to first family, but they also still have to get over this culture shock, right? And so I kind of thought, you know, in a perfect world, can I help my kids get over some of that culture shock and make it a real place for them so that when they go for other things that might be more adoption related, that at least they have some of the pieces of the puzzle already there. I've been here before. I know the food. I know the language. I know how to go to the 7-Eleven and get my mom a coffee in the morning, right? Whatever it might be. They know the money. They can, they can shop in the markets. 
um, they can use the subway. And so some of it is familiar to them. That was my hope. That is my hope. So that some of it is familiar to them for when they perhaps want to do something beyond just the culture aspects. Um, you know, for Korea, you can't search legally for your birth parents until you're 19. And so that's a ways off for them. But can I give them a foundation um, from which to understand themselves and their birth families? Um, so that when that time comes, and if that's, you know, for what they wish, that they can um, move on to that next step of the process. So we go back there. We've gone back the last three summers as a family of four. Um, and it, certainly, you know, my husband travels quite a bit for work. So that's a huge way we can go to is benefiting from a lot of miles and, and, and points. So I, I know that we're in a, in a privileged place to be able to do that when it comes to the financial aspects aspect as well. But let me just add, Lisa, that while the culture is so important, that's often what adoptive parents are really good at, right? Like putting our kids in their Chinese clothing or going to celebrate um, an Ethiopian holiday. Um, we can really get our minds around that. However, when I step out into the world, they don't see me as, oh, that's a lady who's Korean. Her ancestors wore hanboks and eat kimchi, right? No, they're saying there's an Asian woman. And here are all the stereotypes that follow an Asian woman. Here are the beliefs I have about Korean people and some of them being not so pleasant, right? The, generation, the generalizations and stereotypes that follow. So I really think even more important than culture is teaching our kids how to be kids of color living in this white world. And that's a whole nother topic um, that is so nuanced and complex. But that's another thing that was um, a very big commitment for my husband and I as we considered the spaces that we travel in and um, where we'd send our kids to school and the books that we'd have in our house and the people that we would bring into our home and the conversations that we would have around the table is um, knowing that our kids are people of color um, in a in a world that values whiteness as normal and as typical. And so how do we empower our kids? How do we help our kids cope with not being white? How do we help them with a the language? Um, how do we have an anti-racist home? Um, how do we have representation in our, in our children's lives? So that along with culture, yeah, topics for, topics for adoptive families for sure. I would love to have you come back and we could do an episode on race. And as a white woman, gosh, I, I need help. I mean, I'm learning and trying to navigate as well as I can having black children, but I need a, there's a lot I could learn. So maybe we could have that conversation another time. Sure. And I'm learning right alongside of you, maybe through a different lens, right? Mm -hmm. But some, ado some adoptees would say, adoptees of color who've been raised by white parents, you know, they'll say we had the veil of white privilege, but it was ripped away when we went to college. And so in some ways, there are some things I can understand, right? Um, having been raised by white parents, now having a white husband, but then this whole other world that's out there that I experienced that maybe someone else who's not Asian um, would not experience. So yes, definitely a conversation um, that we could have sometime. And I appreciate how you say as a white woman, I have a lot to learn. Um, I mean, there's a humbleness there as an Asian woman. There's a lot that I have to learn. So yeah, thanks for being open, open to that conversation, which is incredibly complex. It is. It is. And I know a lot of adoptive parents, we all feel like we need help with that one. So mm. 
Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and just helping us learn new things and sharing your story with us. I just loved having you here. Thank you so much. It was fun. I hope we can talk again. Lisa, I loved that interview with Tara. I think we would be friends if we lived a little closer. I mean, I guess we can still be virtual friends, but I think we have a lot of similar experiences, similar thoughts. I appreciated how honest and authentic she was and that she also caveated her story, which is the way I like to talk about mine, which is it's one story and there's so many more out there and we all have different experiences. And so I really appreciated that about her. Right. Well, you are both um, transracially adopted from Korea and you're not, I don't think you're that far apart in age. Yeah, I think a couple of years. I figured it out at one point while I was listening. I think she mentioned what year she came home or something. So I think we're probably within five years for sure. So same era, all the things, a lot of things were the same. Right. And yet your stories and your experiences are very, very different because you're you and she's her and you have different families. I think it's, it's a great thing for us all to remember as we listen to the voices of adoptees and first moms that we all experience this differently. And so the more we listen, the better, really. Yeah. And we have to listen to our kids as well because their stories are not necessarily going to match up with some of the other stories that you guys have the privilege of hearing from other adoptees. If you'd like to find out more about Tara, you can find her on her website, taravanderwood.com. And Vanderwood is spelled very differently, well, differently to me. So um, you might want to go to our show notes to find the spelling of her name, but it's V-A-N-D-E-R-W-O-U-D-E. So taravanderwood.com. You can find her on Facebook as Tara Vanderwood slash, no, dash social worker. And then on Instagram, she's taravw.com postadopt.educator. You can find all of this information because you're probably not writing it all down right now. You can find it all on our website in the show notes, which you'll find at theadoptionconnection.com slash 79. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.